Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Are you ready for a summer vacation? On this week's Louisiana Eats, we're going on vacation with some of our favorite people in the food and drinks world. Even though Michael Gulotta's restaurants, Mofo and Maypop, are known for their Southeast Asian flair, Michael had never been there until a recent trip with Paul Shell, Mofo's chef de cuisine, changed all that. They join us to share every bite of that wild experience. Then, homegrown culinary power couple Cody and Samantha Carroll share their adventures cooking authentic Louisiana gumbo in Japan. And Polly Watson, the crew from the Avenue Pub, Take us along on a Belgian beer tour. <laughs> that was a rough business trip. We're traveling the world and never leaving home. Right here on this week's Louisiana Eats. I am Michael Galata. I am the chef partner of Mofo and Maypop Restaurants. New Orleans native Michael Galata has a style of cuisine that's perhaps best described as Southeast Asia meets Southeast Louisiana. When he opened Mofo in 2014, he amazed diners and critics with his artful combinations of traditional Vietnamese and local ingredients. Uh, my name is Paul Chell. I'm the chef de cuisine at Mofo Restaurant. When Paul Shell started working at Mofo after the restaurant opened, he brought with him years of experience cooking in India, Malaysia, and Indonesia. I would say total probably three years, like if you put it end to end. I've just gone over traveling, you know, initially for fun and for sightseeing and for learning things. I think I just didn't realize how much knowledge I had gained because I was utilizing it here and there. But um, once I came on board to MoFo, I was like, this is like the dream restaurant. Like, I can utilize all this knowledge now. And and Mike's background is such that I was learning a lot from him just in terms of more fine dining aspects and leadership in the kitchen and things like that. So it was a good give and take kind of situation where we were both learning from each other. While Paul acquired knowledge of new aspects of restaurant work, Michael got new insights into ingredients like curry paste. I think that was probably Paul, or still is Paul's biggest contribution as far as, like, we, we definitely, when we opened MoFo, it was all about, all right, everything gets made in the mortar and pestle. We do the curry paste by hand, but we were making really traditional curry paste, and then we would add, like, funky things that we would find to the finished product. But Paul more showed us how a curry paste can be anything. Is You know, it, can, it, it has to kind of follow a certain couple of rules, but... You can throw smoked paprika in there, you know, because uh, it's almost like with a gumbo. Everybody's gumbo is different. 
you can do anything with curry as long as you f- sort of follow these guidelines. And, and that's really what he brought to the kitchen was like, well, these are kind of the guidelines to make a curry. From there, we can do whatever we want. With Paul on board in the kitchen, Mofo began the process of changing its menu. Old dishes came off and better dishes came on, each finding their footing using more traditional ingredients and methods. Yeah, we kind of went backwards at Mofo because I opened it just <laughs> no, just off the, off of my growing up with a lot of Vietnamese friends and eating their food and my love of really more Thai. I found out that my love is actually more for Thai food when I opened Mofo and all of my Vietnamese friends showed up and said, this is Thai food, man. You're all off, like you're way <laughs> off the mark. And I'm like... Right, but I like the way it tastes, so we kind of went with it, and then Paul came on board, and really it was like, I get what you're going for, let me, and so he started making traditional meals for us. He would make a dish for all the cooks to kind of taste and be like, this is something that I had when I was here, this is what I had when I was here, and so we'd taste it, and then that started guiding the menu. Uh, and so that that's sort of where the, where the transition started happening, where MoFo really started, we started getting more of a, a solidified foundation to our dishes. We already had some pretty good recipes, but he came in. He's like, actually, they would do it this way. And then so we kind of met in the middle, but still keeping that New Orleans soul. Mofo had already secured its place in the local dining scene in 2016 when Food & Wine magazine pegged Michael as one of America's best chefs. He continued expanding and refining his Southeast Asian-inspired cooking in 2017 when he opened Mofo's sister restaurant, Maypop. Yet despite years of success harnessing the culinary commonalities shared between here and Southeast Asia, Michael had never actually been there for a visit. That's where Paul comes back in. My wife, Rachel Whitwer, is the uh, executive director for an organization called Learn to Live, and they take health care to villages. Uh, so they have a large program in Indonesia that I go to every year, but she had a program in Laos and I hadn't been to Laos in a while, and I really wanted to go. And I was basically like, I'll just see if Mike wants to go. That way, I'll probably be able to get the time off. <laughs> oh, wait. Hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Back that now up. Now the <laughs> truth comes out. Now the just truth kidding, comes just out. Just kidding. I was used. <laughs> Looking to provide Michael with a firsthand glimpse of the food and culture of Southeast Asia... The two set out on a two-week voyage of discovery. Take us on the trip you went on, Michael. How'd that go? Well, first there's jet lag. Uh, (laughs) lag. I think it was interesting because I didn't know what to expect, and obviously Paul's been there a number of times. Singapore was is sort of like the best sort of introduction to Southeast Asia because it's very well organized. It's very wealthy. Even the even the hawker centers where they have all the people serving food are super organized and clean and well kept. And of course, the words you're saying is like hawk, like someone like is hawking, hawking your gear. Yeah, yeah, right. And I mean, we just it was literally right at the door of our hotel. We walked next door and it, it said coffee, and we're like, oh, coffee. But we walk in and it was a whole hawker center with stalls. But it was a, a center stall that gave you this really amazing coffee and condensed milk. And so we went for the coffee condensed milk and then stayed for all the hawker stalls. What were some of the most amazing highlights? Oh, the sweet potato noodles. Yeah. We had these sweet potato noodles that I didn't know. And I'm like, sweet potatoes? I mean, I know sweet potatoes. <laughs> and so it was the last morning in, in Singapore, and I was like, I, I got to get those sweet potato noodles. And I got them, and it was so like nothing I had had because they made it really sour with tamarind water, and there was palm sugar in there, and it was spicy. 
I loved it because it had a boiled egg on top. Whereas, like, my mom used to serve her spaghetti and meatball or spaghetti and red gravy without meatballs. I started with a boiled egg. So I was like, oh, it's, like, it's noodles like and boiled egg and saw and, 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 well, sweet potato gravy. That dish to me was yeah, really eye opening. Uh, yeah. And then we jumped to Vientiane. We landed in Vientiane. And Paul's like, oh, it doesn't norm- this is new, this whole airport. It's usually much smaller. But I get off the plane, I'm like, something's on fire. Something's burning. And he goes, no, 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 that's that's the whole town smells like that because everyone still cooks over wood fires in their home. And so the entire city had this sort of haze over it because people, people were still cooking over wooden fuel, which is just unreal. And so what did you eat there? Well, that's when I first had the lob salad. And what is that? A chopped meat salad. We had a duck lob from this lady. Uh, we've gone to a lot of times. We just call her the noodle lady, my wife and I. She's at the end of the street in front of a convenience store. She just sets up two burners, got a bunch of woks, and she's got four dishes that she serves. But the duck lob, when I had it uh, a couple years ago, like just blew my mind. So I was like, well, we got to have that. And it was, it was still as good. Tons of mint, you know, and then the hot, sour, salty, sweet, just... And it was spicy, but it wasn't as spicy as I remembered, even though we kind of asked her to make it spicy. However, we also got this other dish, which is like chicken sauté with holy basil. And I told her, just like, make it loud spicy. And she did. It was really good. A lot of chilies. That's one of our your code words when you're over there. You have to tell everyone we want it loud spicy, because otherwise they'll tone it down if you're a tourist or if you're yeah. a foreigner. So you have to ask everyone, uh, loud spicy, loud spicy. Even when we asked for Laos Spicy, they still weren't giving it to us Laos Spicy. Yeah, and, and last, they really want to please you. you know, they really want to make sure that you enjoy your time and, and the food that you're eating. A lot of the Lao flavors are too much for, for Westerners. Oh, this is such a fun trip that I'm <laughs> taking with you all. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what happens next? Well, wait, we didn't talk about the stuffed frog. <laughs> oh, boy. So, so it was a, a frog stuffed with uh, pork sausage and then grilled over an open fire. But the cool thing was just how much lime leaf. I think the big thing we realized while we were there is they use so much lime leaf everywhere we went. Just And it's just it's so refreshing. And so uh, it was just stuffed with this pork, lime leaf, and vermicelli noodle sausage. And the vermicelli noodles made it moist, and so it was like this really delicious stuffed frog. And then what happens after the stuffed frog? Well, um, Luang Prabang, we did do that cooking class, which I think was eye-opening for you. You know, I mean, I had done that exact class before. So what was really cool is that we went to this one restaurant, and they're they're very big about preserving their heritage through food. And so they also offer this little cooking class. And so you get up early, you go to the, the restaurant in the morning. And then they drive you to the market, to the huge market, and they show you, like, all the things that you can buy, um, especially, like, their fish sauce. They don't even let tourists eat their fish sauce because their fish sauce is, is fermented and it's not cooked. It's raw fermented fish, and it's very, very powerful. Wow. And so then they drove us all the way up into the hills to this beautiful little cooking kitchen that they have that's all open fires. And they just run you through some really traditional dishes, like we stuffed lemongrass where you do these perfect cuts to the lemongrass and it kind of spirals open and you stuff it full of uh, chicken sausage and grill it over these open fires. We, we learned how to make the jowls. Okay, so where do we go next on this trip? Bangkok. Yeah. <gasps> I think, I mean, as far as like pound for pound, Bangkok's food just knocked your lights out. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't pull any punches at all. It was great. Because they don't care if you're a tourist. It's like, it's like New York. It's so big and there's so many people just living and working mm-hmm. there that if you go eat at one of their restaurants, they could care what color you are, who you are. They're just going to give you their food, the food that they like to eat. And I still remember our first meal was the boat noodle, boat yeah, noodles. Boat noodles, yeah. And so we 
had been traveling all day. We were we were kind of grouchy, and we were trying to find. And like, it's a huge city, and you're just sort of wandering. And and Paul just latched onto their stuff by the Liberty Monument. So or uh, Liberty Vic- Monument, Victory Monument, Victory Monument. Yeah, yeah. So we went to the Victory Monument, and we're just kind of wandering and. We could see a bunch of people in this spot, and we couldn't figure out how to get there. So we're going around blocks and walking around, and there's all these canals through Bangkok that you don't really see because the city's sort of built up over them. But they still use them, so it looks like a, it looks like a drainage dish. But then you'll see a boat fly down it, <laughs> like a, like a transport taxi. And so we we uh, we kind of see all these people, and we can't get to where they are. And we kind of walk around blocks, and we finally get there, and it's just packed full of people, and they're just waiting in line. And there's this outdoor kitchen; it's outdoor, and they're just souping this broth and noodles into bowls and just finishing them with different things. And people with inside just have bowls stacked, stacks and stacks of bowls because each bowl only costs like a dollar. Each one's full of about three or four bites of food. Wow. And so you sit down with a group of like 10 people and you just stack bowls to the ceiling. Um, and there was only three of us. So we, I think we, we still stacked about eight bowls or something like that. But then we had Thai cow soy. Yeah, we had Thai cow. Yeah, which was really good. But the first thing that I noticed was just it was just so aggressively seasoned. It was hot, sour, salty, sweet. Everything was just hot, sour, salty, sweet, in-your-face flavors, uh, and so rich. It was almost like the sauces were over-reduced on purpose. Like, they were really, really, like, sticky, glutinous broths over rice noodles with pork over the top or duck over the top or chicken over the top, and it was, it was amazing. So tell me how we're going to see this. What's going to be happening? And I can only imagine it's going to be happening in two places. <laughs> so Paul already did the Bangkok boil. You want to talk about yeah, that? That's already yeah. on the menu at MoFo. So we're doing that every weekend. We're uh, you know crawfish are in season now, so we're doing uh, tom yum crawfish, also known as the Bangkok boil, uh, boiled crawfish tossed in tom yum butter. So we took tom yum soup, which is a coconut soup. It's kind of a hot and sour coconut soup. Emulsified a bunch of butter into it. So uh, we're tossing the. Uh, Crawfish in that, and in something I'm calling Taijin spice, basically Cajun spice <laughs> with a lot of kefir lime. Tossing the crawfish in that, and then andouille sausage, potatoes, and corn, like we do. Once you're finished with all the crawfish, you've got this wonderful broth in the bottom. Mm. So then order a side of fun noodles and put that into the broth, and then eat those noodles with that soup that's left over. So that'll be throughout all till crawfish are no more this season. So yeah, we, we're now doing Thai, a Thai crawfish boil. Surely we're about to eat some new Southeast Asian-inspired creations at Maypop, too. So we just put a new clam pasta on. So we made bucatini with spring onions, so spring onion bucatini. And then we're tossing it with clams. But the, the thing that I love, I kind of took that the tomato, the red sauce that we that we had in the, in the boat noodle place. Yes. But instead I kind of, you know, I got kind of fancy and I fermented the tomatoes. And then we're tossing it with the clams. So that's kind of your sour. But the secret is the fresh Thai chilies, the fresh lime leaf, and tons of that fresh shaved lemongrass. Like that's the one, like the big thing that I really took away from our travel. And so it looks like an Italian dish. It looks like a dish that I made when I worked on the coast of Italy, which is just simple clams and pasta with olive oil and the crushed Calabrian chilies. But this one is Thai chilies, and it's instead of doing olive oil, we did virgin coconut oil. And then we're tossing it with the freshly opened clams and a little bit of white wine and then all of this lemongrass and all of this uh, lime leaf. And so when you eat it, it looks like Italy, but it tastes like Thailand. And it's just sort of this, I don't know. I love it. That sounds awesome. It's really, really fun. And we're going to, eventually we're going to put boat noodles on uh, our happy hour at Maypop. Coming soon. That's not there yet. It's in the works. All I can tell you all is I am so thrilled to have taken this trip with you vicariously 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. That was Paul Schell, chef de cuisine at MoFo Restaurant, and Michael Galata, chef partner of MoFo and Maypop. Coming up next, we hear from another pair of itinerant chefs, Samantha and Cody Carroll, as they describe their experience of making gumbo for conventioneers in Tokyo. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Ralph's on the Park, overlooking City Park's ancient oaks. Serving locally sourced Gulf seafood, meats, and farm fresh produce, all presented with a global spin by Chef Chip Flanagan. Lunch, dinner, Saturday and Sunday brunch and private events at 900 City Park Avenue in Mid-City. I'm Cody Carroll with Hot Tails Restaurant New Roads. And I'm Samantha Carroll, Cody's wife and co-owner of Hot Tails and also the boss. (laughs) Cajun chefs are notorious for cooking just about anywhere, from the fish camp on the bayou to church picnics to backyard boils. In 2016, Samantha and Cody Carroll, the chef owners of New Roads Hot Tails Restaurant, found themselves in a particularly challenging place for a Cajun chef, Japan. At the behest of the lieutenant governor, the two chefs flew to Tokyo to make Louisiana gumbo for caterers and conventioneers. Samantha and Cody told us what they found when they got there and what got lost in translation. When they had the IPW conference here, IPW, it's it's a big group. It's tourism companies from all over the world. And they had a big hoopla. Travel agents. Yeah, travel and... agents, different things like that. They had a big party that the lieutenant governor and his office put on. And it was at the Superdome. So we cooked for that. And the president of JADA, which is this huge Japanese travel agent group, was there. And he invited the lieutenant governor back to Japan, come to JADA. Well, then the floods happened. And the lieutenant governor couldn't make it. But he was like, you know what? I'm going to send some chefs. So we got the call. From the U.S. Embassy. Yeah, the oh, U.S. Yeah. Embassy. So we packed our stuff. We worked with them. We cooked three days at the Jada Convention and made seafood gumbo. And then we had to teach them how to do it. We had to teach them how to do it as well. We had to teach two different restaurants or caterers how to make gumbo. It was really teaching the chefs how to make a roux and not be scared of it. 
the, whenever we went to this first restaurant, they brought us in and they were so nervous to meet us. And we walk upstairs and then they walk out this gumbo and they're so nervous. They're like shaking their hands, placing it down in front of us. And, we're and like, what did it down. look like? What did it look it, like? It had, it didn't. Oh, it was so bad. <laughs> it didn't quite it bad, look like gumbo. Was, you could, all right, we could literally see every ingredient in it. It was in a clear broth. Basically. Oh, so it was like a so, miso soup with yeah, gumbo and right. It was, it was like a, It's exactly what it looked like. Except the broth was, it was actually kind of thick. Yeah. It was clear. You can tell they made so a roux. We actually had two translators. And I was telling them to tell the chef that everything's perfect as far as the, how they cooked the shrimp and the okra and everything else. But what happened with the roux? Yeah. And I said, was he scared? Asked me if he was scared to make it brown. And they asked me, he was like, yeah, I was scared I was going to burn it. I was like, well. So I asked, I said, well, can we go downstairs into the kitchen? Would it be okay if I come show you how to do it? And he was like, of course, you know. So we went down there and. And just to find the right oil was a challenge. <laughs> they had two oils. One was a sesame yeah, oil. Yeah, you oil, can't make gumbo sesame, with sesame oil or <laughs> olive oil. I know. So then they had one that called, it was called their salad oil. But I looked on the back and it was actually canola oil. I was like, oh, I can well, use there this. there you go. So I can yeah. use yeah. canola oil or vegetable oil. So I grabbed that one. So I'm making, actually making a dark, dark roux with a salad oil, which is weird. But um, we showed them how to do it. And it turned out beautifully. It was crazy and i still talk about this like that night i was blown away i said we could not speak their language and they could not speak english but whenever we all got into that kitchen we barely had to use a translator because our body language just read what normal chef's body language read yeah like i need a spoon or i need this or whatever and they're kind of looking around it they see they knew what you need it was it was a beautiful thing well Uh, i recently learned that okra is pretty prevalent in japan yeah it was everywhere what else went into your Japanese gumbo? We were able to find some good crabs there, uh, not many, and then some beautiful shrimp. But we actually had to fly over some shrimp as well, too, so make our base oh. for our big dinner, yes, on the last night. Whenever we went to the Skiji fish market and to see the seafood they have in that place, and even on the outskirts, like the people making bonita flakes. And when you said okra, they had one vendor designated to all things okra. And he pickled them and dried them and did okra chips. Like anything you could do with okra, this man did it in that little shop. And it was just beautiful because in Japan, you just like they do in Louisiana, every ingredient has a purpose and they're going to do as many things with it as they can. So you got the okra gumbo right. Mm-hmm. What was the reaction when they ate it? We were on a big stage. It was the brand USA stage. And our interpreter was kind of, after the first time we did our presentation, he was like, you know, it's okay that they're not that lively. That's that's the Japanese way. And I was like, no, we're not going to settle for that. We got to get these people riled up. So we had tons of Mardi Gras beads with us. And so we decided to teach them how to say, show me something, mister. Oh, throw me. <laughs> oh, oh, throw me something, mister. That's you. You can show me something if you want to. And they just lost it. Like, they started throwing their kids up in the air and, like, you know, making a big ruckus. It was crazy. And we're throwing beads at all these people. And, I mean, we're surrounded by other countries in their booths. So Egypt's over here looking at us like, what they got going over in the United States area of this convention? Yeah. It was crazy. So we had the party, and then we would feed them the gumbo after that. And, and they then just, they just, tasted the gumbo. And they so they can't it. slurp it at the bowl because there's too much chewing going on. <laughs> 
Well, they have so some happened? of them have their own chopsticks, so they like whip those out and they kind of help shovel it in. Yeah, <laughs> their that's mouth. exactly like, how they'll they're kind of holding it up to their mouth and kind of kind of scooping it in. And because gumbo in Louisiana is called gumbo, in Japan, our interpreter kept calling it gumbo soup, and Cody's like, "No, it, it's gumbo. It's not a soup. It's a gumbo." And a lot of them would compliment when he right whenever he would translate back to us what they were saying about the gumbo, they would all compliment how deep the dashi flavor is. Which, <laughs> yeah. when there was no dashi. No, There's no dashi they, in it. But that's what they call there. It's like a, a seafood soup, like so a fish soup. Yeah, the the so translator was having trouble translating words that we, that we use here. So when he would translate them, it would come out like that. Like The only thing he could compare it to was dashi. So he'd say it's like a dashi kind of thing. But what it really was was your deep, deep, deep right. shrimp stock That's flavor. That's what they were exactly. tasting. But for them to say that and really say how different it was, because you would watch them take the first sip, and then their eyes would light up kind of like with a question, like, what is this I'm eating? And then they go for another sip, and then they all kind of nod. And then they just down it and finish the rest of it. So <laughs> it was definitely something to bring them that they've never had before. Well, I am so glad that you all were chosen to be our Louisiana ambassadors to Japan. We were honored to go. It was amazing. Well, congratulations on all the wonderful things in your lives. And please come back and talk to us again on Louisiana Eats. We will. We love it here. We love you, Poppy. Award-winning restaurateurs and Louisiana ambassadors. Samantha and Cody Carroll. Hi, my name is Linda Myers. And I'm George Myers, and we're 250-somethings that travel the world eating, cooking, and playing. Linda and George Myers are Americans, Belt Chase natives, in fact. This long-married couple have pursued their culinary dreams right out of this country. They've combined their love of food and travel and completely recreated their lives. In retirement, the former schoolteacher and Air Force pilot abandoned America the Beautiful for some serious globetrotting. The couple now own cooking schools in Italy, Mexico, and Cuba. Now, you all had a very conventional life for most of the life so far. Give us your aha moment with, okay, we're going to change. We're going to change everything. Okay, so my aha moment would definitely have been coming home every day and just watching TV and living for that 12 hours of daylight on Saturday and never really getting to see George and never really getting to spend quality time with our kids and so forth. It was just like, this is not what it's about. It's really not. We need to start doing something more, start living. And it just... Let's do it, George. Let's do it. Let's just travel the world. Let's give it all up and just travel. And he said, well, what happens if we lose our house? And my reply was quick, really quick. I just said, I'm not that attached to it. And the <laughs> next day, I put in my resignation. How wonderful. Yes. 
How long did it take you before you found the place and figured out the direction? Mm. Well, I was on a plane within maybe two weeks to Italy, and I didn't come home for about four months. I, I assume you were with her, huh, George? No, I was not. <laughs> what? I, actually, Uh-oh. I was still working because I said, this thing may not work out. <laughs> so I mean, I mean, we're going to do this, but I was scared. I'll be honest. I was scared. And people who say, man, you're brave. And I'll go, no, no, no. You're never not going to be scared. In fact, that's the fun part of it is scaring yourself, I think. If we're not all those scared. In fact, if you're not scared, you're not doing enough. So what were you doing away for four months? Well, George and Whitney, our daughter, had come with me, and we kind of set up. We rented a house in this little village. and What was the village? Montefalonica. It's a little hilltop village um, in the southern part of Tuscany. It's from the 13th century. Our house that we have there is 750 years old. I got a car and started getting to know things, and I just got out and started meeting people and started going to places, and I just fell in love with the whole village and everything about it, and I knew that's where we were going to be for a long time. How many people live in this little village? We have about 120 people that live in our village, and about, I would say, 75% are over the age of 80, and we have 12 people over the age of 100. Oh, so you're looking at some great longevity there, huh? We are. You're going to make old bones. Lots of olive oil and good tomatoes. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. You find Montefalonico, and you know that this is the spot. Now, how do you know there's going to be a cooking school there? Well, you don't. But just like we've lived all over the world, all over the United States, I should say, you know, people come to visit you just like they come to visit you in New Orleans. And for one day, you can take them everywhere. You might wear them out, but you know where to go. You know the restaurants to go to, and you go, don't order because I'm ordering for you. This is what you're going to get here. We're going over here. You're going to see this. You're going to see that. And that's what you start doing for people in Tuscany because they come to visit you. Then before long, you realize you don't know any of the people who are coming because they're friends of friends, and you go, hey, we might be on to something, and that's act, that's the way it happens. And how long ago was that? When did you officially start the cooking officially school Officially started about five, six years ago that we started bringing people who as a business. Give me an example of a day at your cooking oh, wow. school. Give me your best day. Well, first of all, we get up, and George is making cappuccinos at the hotel for you. And then we're off to one of our kitchens right there in the village. We just walk along the cobblestone streets. And we get there, and we start making pasta. And the Nonas are the grandmothers of the village. This is who's teaching them how to roll pasta. All the grandmothers and all them who are not professionally trained teach. But then the music starts and the wine starts flowing and everybody's having a great time. We go in the kitchens and we have contests on different countries because we have people from all over the world who come to visit us in Tuscany. So we'll have Canada versus Australia and they'll be rolling or they'll be making a crostata and it's really a lot. And then we dance around. And of course, we have to bring New Orleans into our little village. So we second line all the way outside into the piazza and back into the restaurant before we have lunch. Then we give everybody a quick break, and then we're off to another village or a wonderful winery and to a gourmet dinner, and we get them home around 10, 30, 11 o'clock, and the next day we get to do it all over again. Oh, my goodness, that sounds like fun. It is a lot of fun. 
Now, how in the world does cook in Tuscany become cook in Mexico and cook in Cuba? Well, that's really simple because when we got to Tuscany and we had so many people coming and we became friends with a lot of people, they'd say, what are you going to do next? Take us somewhere else. Take us somewhere else. We had been going to San Miguel. We loved it. And we said, okay, let's try it. And it just, we started there. The next time somebody said, you know, we can start going to Cuba. What do you think? And we were like, okay. So we booked a flight. We figured it all out. And here we are in Cuba. It's amazing what people will say, George, when you guys open up a cooking school in Pakistan, we're coming. We're like, okay, well, maybe not there, but it really is amazing. I mean, so, we're, you know, we're in Mexico and in Cuba, and the people who come are the people who come to Tuscany. They're our friends, and they want to follow us. In fact, it's so great now that, you know, we travel. That's our, our life is a travel that they now they invite us to go on their vacations with them. And this second life has definitely been fun for George and I. I mean, we really fell in love with each other again. We fell in love with our life again. We laughed. <laughs> Have you all turned into the poster children for retirement? <laughs> um, yes, I think we have. Yes. <laughs> that was Bell Chase natives, Linda and George Myers. If you want to learn more about their travels and how you can join them, visit their website, cookeatplaytravel.com. What makes a mortar and pestle an essential tool in every kitchen? Stay tuned, and we'll let you in on why when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Do you have a date to dine out for life this year? Thursday, June 6th is this year's official Dining Out for Life Day. For the 25th year, Dining Out for Life, the most important annual fundraiser for Crescent Cares Food for Friends, is encouraging everyone to dine out at a participating restaurant. You can find the full list of participating restaurants at diningoutforlife.com. The link will be on our website as well. I'm serving as celebrity chair for the eighth year, and this year we've decided to expand the one day to an entire week. Catch up with me at our official Dining Out for Life events, starting with our dim sum drag brunch at Maypop Restaurant on Sunday, June 2nd, with cocktails from Monkey Shoulder. The fun continues on Thursday, June 6th, where I'll be hosting a Hendrix happy hour from 6 to 8 p.m. at Tableau in conjunction with the opening of Marquee, a Le Petit Theater vaudeville-style production featuring Vincentos and Lady Beast. Friday, June 7th, we'll continue the celebration from 4 to 6 p.m. at Brennan's Restaurant's Gay Pride Happy Hour. Don't miss Project Runway's Mondo Guero sabering the champagne in the Brennan's patio at 5 p.m. Then, 
on Saturday, June 8th, we'll wrap up the week's celebrations with a pop-up drag brunch at Sobu, complete with a glitter bar from Electra Cosmetics. All events will benefit Crescent Cares Food for Friends, a program that delivers over 39,000 hot meals annually to people suffering from cancer and HIV. They operate a community food bank as well. So come out and join us for this year's Dining Out for Life. You'll find links to all the events on our website at poppytooker.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What makes a mortar and pestle an essential tool in every kitchen? This most ancient of kitchen tools still performs certain tasks better than the sharpest knife, fastest blender, or the most powerful food processor. What is it? A mortar is a grinding bowl made of a very hard substance, like granite, marble, or olive wood. The word pestle comes from a Latin word, which means pounder. The bottom line is, if you want to make curry paste from scratch or amaze family and friends with the table-side guacamole, you need one. Crushing with a mortar and pestle releases essential oils and flavors into food that you just can't get with a knife. Food processors cause more bruising to your ingredients than crushing in a mortar does. Once you get your mortar, it needs to be seasoned. Wash it with warm water, no soap, and then crush an entire head of garlic with salt into a paste. Good practice for learning to use it. Spread that paste over the interior surface of the bowl and let it sit overnight. Wash out the bowl with warm water and then add a handful of wet cooked rice. Grind that into a paste and if it's gray or ashen colored, rinse and repeat until the rice paste is white. Rinse again and then it's ready to go. When using your mortar and pestle, here's a good rule of thumb. Always start with the dry ingredients, like dried herbs and spices. Next, use moist ingredients like garlic, onion, fresh herbs, or brown sugar. Move on to oily ingredients like anchovies, nuts, cheese, and butter, and finish with wet ones like lemon juice, vinegar, soy, or honey. One thing's for certain. Whatever comes out of your mortar and pestle is guaranteed to be good. Louisiana Eats. I'm Polly Watts. I'm the owner of the Avenue Pub in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I'm Alfred Flanagan. I've been bartending at the pub for a little over a decade now. I'm Eileen Matuszewski, and I'm one of the managers at the Avenue Pub. Polly Watts and her team of craft beer buffs would sooner replace their Berliner Weiss with Bud Light than close their 24-hour pub for more than a day. That is, until taking a staff trip to Belgium became a possibility. Polly planned a tour of some of the most legendary breweries across Belgium, and her team got the opportunity to meet several of the brewers whose very special beers graced the Avenue Pub's extensive menu. 
Following their return to New Orleans, we sat down with the Avenue Pub crew to hear about their travels. To begin, Polly described how this beer lover's dream became a reality. Well, I'd been to Europe for a couple of, uh, a few times on beer-related visits, and I had been scheming for a while on how to get major members of my staff over there. And in the long run, we just decided that it was easier to close the bar and then just take as many people as we could. And then we wouldn't have to worry about what was going on at the bar while we were over in Europe drinking beer and having fun. So how many people went along on this beer journey? We had nine staff members go. And where did you go? We started, we based out of Brussels. So we rented a house for the whole staff, for the staff that went in Brussels. And we rented cars and we did the breweries in Brussels. And then we went out in the countryside and to other cities. And we also fit in Cologne um, because it's only about two hours from Brussels. When you all arrived in Europe, what was the first beer you drank? <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember this when we were at lunch? Yeah, so so there are two versions of their story. That's the, there's the version I'd like people to think, <laughs> and then there's the truth. <laughs> the truth is that we arrived, we had no luggage, and we sort of had to kind of stay close to the house to see if we were going to, but we were all itching to get out and get something. So we walk out, several of us walk out, um, and we stop in a cafe, and they have the worst beer imaginable. So we're sitting at the cafe and we just we just are soaking in the fact that we're in Brussels and you know any beer is great because you're in Belgium except that's not really the case. <laughs> but our second beer. The second beer was really awesome. That was Delassen. So um Yvonne Debetz from Delassen brought a care package to the house and not only did he bring us beer four cases us, four cases he brought us proper glassware to drink said beer in. Well, let's walk through some of the new tastes that you all had. What were some of the surprising experiences and and things that you learned? I don't know if we really tasted that much new stuff because Polly is pretty good about letting us try most of the beers that we have there. Just It makes it easier for us to describe it to a guest. It makes it easier for us to sell it. So a lot of the stuff we had already had. We did go to Cantillon, and uh, Jean brought us out some beers that we hadn't had before that I don't think are distributed to the U.S. No, they're not distributed to the U.S. He brought out some stuff from his personal collection. So he introduces me to this beer, and he says, this is the best Lambic I've ever made. Lambic is a very traditionally made beer. Yeah. Um, and uh, most aficionados feel that it has to be made in the Seine Valley in, in Belgium in order to be called lambic. So it's spontaneously fermented, which means you have an added yeast. It comes from the air. And there are only a few producers that still do this. Jean Van Roy is descendant. His he's It's a multiple generation family brewery. And it is a lambic that has been aged in Vajon barrels. Now, I didn't know what Vajon was prior to this trip. And Jean explained it. And I did a little bit of research in the back. Um, you know, after we left, but it's a it's a young Swiss wine um, that's made, I believe, in the Jura, Jura the yeah. Jura Mountains. But it has a very distinctive spice note in it. When I tasted it, I thought there was curry in it, and I actually asked him, "Did you add spice to this?" Because brewers add spice. He said, "No, that's from the barrels." And I looked when we were in Brussels to try and find us some of the wine. It's hard to find. New Orleans, however being the place that it is, 
When I got back to the States, I called a couple of my distributors and said, do you have any Vin Jean? There are probably six or seven producers of it. And I did find a Vin Jean. I sent the, the note to Cantillon, to Jean, said, is this the type of wine? He said, absolutely, that's it. That's a good one. And I tasted it. And it was amazing to me. And I think I gave you all a yeah, taste it. of the wine, too. How much of the flavor of that wine... Now, he didn't blend it with the wine. He just aged it in the same barrels. Came out in the Lambic that we tasted in, in, in Brussels. He and a couple of others in the industry, Armand with Drifantinen, have really been credited in the last 20 years with reviving this historical beer-making process and introducing it to brewers because it was on its deathbed 20 years ago. And why was that, you think, Polly? There's a lot of debate about that. But, um, you know, America 20 years ago was firmly entrenched in sort of the Bud Miller Coors culture. American beer geekery, as we know it now, was in its infancy. Jean and Armand with Drifontining, which is another brewery, brewery we visited just in a little city right outside of Brussels, both credited the American market for saving not only their establishments, but for saving the entire culture of Lambic. It was the demand in the United States that started to grow that gave them the ability to continue. Describe some of these breweries. I mean, how old were some of these places you all visited? Yeah, Cantillon is over 100 years old. One of the the things that we found so unique, not only that each brewery was different, sort of each brewer's take on how they brew or what was most important to them, was different. So like at De La Seine, which while his machinery was all very brand new, he's very dedicated to yeast. Right? Yeast is, is incredibly important in, in ale making. He gives and, the most sensual brewery tour you ever want to go on. <laughs> How does that go? Well, he re- yeast is a woman. So it's about keeping her happy and, and letting her expand the way because she would like to. Because when she is unhappy, she produces nasty things. It's a wonderful tale that he tells about something that could come off very technical to someone, and he makes it, he humanizes it. Now that you all have been on the ultimate work field trip, how have you brought that experience back to the pub, and how are you seeing things differently and maybe sharing with your customers the differences? Uh, One of the kinds of lambics that, that are very popular is a creek, which is a cherry lambic. It's a it's a lambic blended with cherries, cherry juice. And uh, two different brewers are in the process of making their own cherry farm because these cherry trees are not, first of all, the beer, they can't even keep up with the demand for that, much less making enough, growing enough cherries to juice enough cherries to make all the beer that they want. The trees used to be very common backyard trees. And as progress, if you want to call it, has eliminated a lot of those backyard trees, there's no place to get them. In fact, Armand and then um, Aud Biersel both told us that they are in the process of planting trees to ensure that the next generation and the generation after that are going to have access to this native fruit. I think that that's the thing that brings a lot of what's special about Belgian beer home to me because there's this that there's this generational aspect and the idea that you would plant orchards to to ensure the longevity of your craft 
because those trees aren't going to bear fruit probably for another seven or eight years at least, and they're not going to be fully productive for many years after that, there's a very good chance our mom will, you know, he'll be gone by then. A big part of what's enjoyable about this kind of trip is sort of soaking up the culture and seeing the way the, the, the way beer sort of just flows through the natural life in the cafes and, and the restaurants over there. So you could, you could go to Belgium and have an extraordinary beer-centric trip and really only visit a couple of breweries and still come back with an amazing experience. I, Marie, Marie, je t'aimais tant entre les tours de Bruges et Gand. Polly Watts and her team from the Avenue Pub. Entre les tours de Bruges et Gand, zonder liefde, warme liefde. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you'll find not only our full broadcasts, but our quick bites for podcasting or webcasting and special videos from producers Jonathan Evans and Marion Gay. That's all on poppytooker.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Palace Cafe, home of the weekend jazz brunch featuring a build-your-own Bloody Mary bar located in the historic Whirline Music Building on Canal Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch in the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.